0: Well, we, um, we come now to, to our message for today, and we are finishing our series, The Life Lessons on the Bible. This is our fifth week in that. We finish it up today, and we've been looking at some different characters from Scripture, learning about their lives, learning about what God did in and through them, but, but maybe even more importantly, we've been listening. We've been listening to what God would have to say to us and to teach us from the lessons of their lives so that we might grow in him as well. And today we finish up looking at Peter. Peter today. And um, Peter was a disciple of Jesus. But you know what? Peter wasn't his name. Right. It's mouth to me here. Simon. His name was Simon. But Peter was kind of a nickname that Jesus gave to him the first time they met. And the first time they met was in the the first chapter of of John. You find it in verse 42. And Jesus looks at Peter, and Jesus says this. He says, you are Simon, son of John. You will be known as Cephas, which is Aramaic for rock, or as Petros, Greek for rock. You will be known as the rock, right? Jesus, Jesus gave him that name. And I mean, what a cool name, right? I mean, if any of us needed a nickname, Rock. Who wouldn't want Rock? That's a great nickname, isn't it? And so Peter, Peter was given this name, The Rock, but, but at that time, Peter had no idea of the cost that he would have to pay to, to live into that identity, to live into that name. And you know what else is strange? If, if you know... If you've studied the Bible, if you know anything about Peter's life, you know this, that he was like nothing like a rock, right? Peter was arrogant. Peter was impulsive. Peter spent a lot of time just running around doing crazy stuff. He jumped out of boats like twice. He kind of made a habit of it, right? (laughs) Peter continually missed the point. Peter was one of these guys that would like talk first and think second. You know what I mean? So now he would act first and think second, right? So Peter wasn't anything like a rock. So it's sort of, it's sort of like a joke that Jesus gave him that name back in John 1, 42. And I like Peter because I feel like I can identify with Peter a lot. Peter screwed stuff up. He was very human, very real in these ways. And and, and maybe maybe you can too. Maybe you can identify with Peter as well. Um, But today, uh, we're going to look at Peter and we're going to look and we're going to be working from John chapter 21 as we look at at Peter. And and John chapter 21 is this pivotal moment in Peter's life. It, It is this transformational moment for Peter because Because if you leave Peter in John chapter 20, what you see is that it all fell apart. It all fell apart. Peter denied Jesus. He failed. He fell on his face. And so if you stop at John chapter 20, then then you separate the Peter of denial and of failure from the Peter of Pentecost. Right, And so John chapter 21 is this pivotal moment, this transformational moment for, for Peter. He goes from being afraid to tell the truth in front of a servant girl to, to preaching with great boldness before thousands of people and standing up to, to the religious authorities of the day. John 21 is this, this uh, transformational, pivotal moment for Peter. And what we'll find as we look at John 21 today, we'll find that Peter here learns the power of restoration. The power of restoration. So we'll begin John 21. I'm going to kind of take this in chunks today. So we'll look at the first six verses here, John 21, 1 through 6. It says, afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee, and it happened this way. Simon, Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. They said, okay, we'll go with you. So they went out and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't, they didn't know that it was Jesus. And he called out to them and he said, friends, have you any fish? And they said, no. And then he said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And when they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of of fish. Okay. Now with this text, this part of this text, some commentators will really dig into this. They'll really dig into Peter here. They'll say, Peter was such a failure because he went back fishing. And maybe he was. I don't know. Maybe he wasn't. It is what he knew how to do, fishing. It was the skill set that Peter had. Maybe he just went fishing to try to provide some food for his family. I don't know. Maybe it wasn't a big moment of failure. Maybe it maybe it was. But he goes fishing. He goes fishing. <clears throat> and that and that night and that night they caught they caught nothing. But the fishing trip really wasn't a failure because they didn't catch anything. The fishing trip was a failure because Peter was relying on his own strength. That's why Peter failed. The text says that night they caught nothing. John, John, the writer of John's gospel, he's very intentional with his language and he says they caught nothing. Now, now this same word is used in John chapter 15. In verse five, Jesus used it when he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing, right? You can do nothing. Now, at this time, these men who were together, who were fishing, I, I am sure that they were completely drained. They were emotionally drained. They had watched their friend, their leader, their savior be crucified and die and be buried. All their, all their dreams and ambitions were dashed. So they were emotionally drained. That they were probably also they were probably also drained just from the fact, you know, maybe spiritually, like from the fact that they now knew that Jesus had risen from the dead. But like how do you even wrap your head around that, right? And so they were probably like spiritually drained from, from trying to figure this out. And then they're, they're obviously physically drained. They've been fishing all night. They've been working on their boat all night. It's now morning and they've caught nothing. These guys are drained. These guys are kind of stripped down to nothing. But here's the thing. Nothing is where God works best. Did you know that? Yeah, praise God. Nothing is where God works best. You know, it's where he seems to show up and do some of his greatest things. I mean, if you turn in your Bible, if you turn in your Bible to the very beginning, to the first page, Genesis 1-1, you know, God made everything out of nothing, right? It's where God does some of his best work out of nothing. And so in this moment of failure, in this moment when the disciples are just drained, in this moment when they have nothing, Jesus shows up on the shore and in verse five, he says, friends, haven't you any fish? Some translations will use the word children, like children, do you have any fish? Anyway, it's just this very like affectionate, endearing language that Jesus uses with them. Do you have any, do you have any fish? And, and notice when Jesus comes to these guys, they're drained, they're stripped down. Jesus comes to them and he doesn't come to them in a prayer meeting Jesus doesn't come to them in a Bible study. Jesus doesn't come to them at church. I mean, I think Jesus values all of those things, but Jesus came to these guys when they were at the end of their rope, when they were completely out of gas. Jesus appears to them and he's with them. And I think that should give some encouragement to us. Like if you, if you are in or you have been in a place where you just felt completely drained, That's when Jesus often will show up. That's when He will come to you, right? Um, He's not only encased in the walls of this building, but but He will come to you when you are most desperate for Him. And He asked them, "How "How are you doing? Right? How are you doing? Have you caught any fish? So, how are you doing? Are you drained? Right? How are you doing?" And Jesus, He addresses this question, right? Children, friends, have you caught any? Have you caught any fish? How are you doing? He addresses this literally to a boatload of failures, right? Boatload of failures there. They didn't catch anything. They caught zero fish. And then he, t- he just tells them, right? Yeah, well, just throw your net on the other side of the boat. And they do. And, it, and it's so full of fish that they can't, even, they can't even physically bring it into the boat. And then something happens here for John. John has some pretty good insight. And John begins to realize this is Jesus over here, right? And then Peter, Peter's the one, like John kind of like understands, Peter just jumps right in, right? And so here, starting in verse seven, we begin to see that Peter is kind of different than the other disciples. He's a little different. And and so in verse seven, we'll pick it back up. It says, so John, that's the disciple Jesus loved, said to Peter, it is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say this, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him because he had taken it off. And he jumped into the water. And then the other disciples, they followed in the boat, like normal people, towing the net full of fish. And they were not far from the shore, about 100 yards. And when they landed, they saw a fire burning. There were coals. There were fish on them. There was some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you just caught. And so Simon Peter climbed back into the boat, and he dragged that net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153 of them. But even with so many, it was not torn. The net was not torn. Now, a couple of things to note here, right? Peter, failure as he was, he wanted nothing more than to be with Jesus, than to be with his Lord. And and you know, for most of us, like for most of us, I think, when we decide to go swimming, right, we tend to take some of our clothes off. But for Peter, he decides to go swimming. He puts his clothes on, right? And then he didn't just jump into the water. Some translations actually say he threw himself. I'm not sure what that looks like. Threw himself into the water, right? Threw himself into the water. And you can just kind of imagine this picture. Like Peter is this guy, he's just sort of spastically, spastically kind of all over the place because he's so excited to be with Jesus. Yeah. And then we read about, you know, we read about this great quantity of fish that they caught on the other side of the boat. And it was so heavy they couldn't even haul it into the boat. And then, and then, well, look, look who hauls it ashore all by himself, right? It's Peter. Peter does this. It's like Peter is competing in the world's weirdest triathlon ever, right? get dressed, go swimming, and then drag a net of fish around. I don't know. Have you ever heard of a triathlon like that? The world's weirdest triathlon Peter's into. Right? And you can just imagine he's kind of running all over the beach, doing all kinds of things. But I'm sure that in the back of his mind in this moment, you know, is, is, that, is that time of denial, is that failure. When he denied that he knew Jesus. The night that his resolve collapsed. And, and, and I wonder, I wonder if like he's using his busyness and his activity just to kind of not have to deal with the, the elephant in the room, if you will. And the scriptures tell us this is the third time that Jesus and Peter were in the same place together, but they still haven't had the conversation, the kind of awkward conversation about what happened, Right. And then we pick it up again, verse, um, verse 12 here, I believe. Jesus said to them, he said, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared to ask, who are you, right? They knew it was the Lord. And Jesus came and he took bread and he gave it to them. And he did the same with the fish. And this was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples since he was raised from the dead. So, so you notice, this is, this, is where the, this is where Peter's restoration begins, and Peter's restoration, where does it begin? It begins basically in communion. Jesus has gathered these guys back together in community, and he's drawing them to himself in a meal. And that's where Peter's restoration begins. So there's a couple of points today on Peter's restoration. And the first is this, is that as Jesus restores Peter, we see that Jesus begins to, to reframe Peter's identity. Begins to rebuild Peter's identity. So in verse 15, it says, when they finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. How How does Jesus address him here? right? Simon. Simon Peter, right? He calls him by his given name. I think this is the equivalent of if you are a kid and you get in trouble with your parents and then they they holler out across the house to you and they use your full name, right? You You know something's up then, right? If your parents holler out with your full name and they call you to them. And I think this is the equivalent of that. Jesus using Peter's given name, Simon. Like, when they call you by your full name, you know a lesson's coming, right? Simon's about to get a lesson here. And and another thing to notice is that Jesus never asks a question that he doesn't already know the answer to, right? Simon, do you love me, right? I mean, he already knows the answer. Why does he ask the question, right? Well, I, I think he asked the question because it wasn't for his benefit. It was for Simon Peter's benefit to answer the question, right? Peter needed to, I think Jesus knew that Peter needed to slow down, right? He's, he's sort of covering his emotion with activity. Peter needed to slow down, Peter needed to calm down. And he needed to begin to think through what happened back in that courtyard. He needed to think, do I love Jesus? Really think about it, right? Do I, do I really love Jesus? Or was I just fascinated by Jesus? Or was I just there with Jesus, like because of the miracles and the, the healing? Need to think about these things. And then the third thing Jesus says is this he says, he says, Do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these, right? And Peter, I think Peter knew what he was asking about. Back in Mark, in Mark's gospel, chapter 14, there's this moment when, when Peter basically says, like, hey, if everybody else leaves you, right, if all these other losers leave you, deny you, I'm going to be there. I'll never leave you. I'll never deny you. I am with you until the end, even unto death, right? He said this. And then, you know, he remembers that young girl in the courtyard, asking him if he knew Jesus. And he denied it three times. And so Peter responds, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Lord, you know. And then a second time in verse 16, in verse 16, Jesus says, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Do you love me? And he answered, yes, Lord, you know I love you. And Jesus said, take care of my sheep. So I think with each question, it's like Jesus is driving home a point here with each question, with the repetition. He's asking Peter about his motivation. He's inquiring to Peter about his heart, right? And you see, our motivation for following Jesus, it will rarely show itself when things are good. But when things get tough, right? Our motivations will begin to surface and become a little more obvious. And so this question must be asked in all that we do, like, what is our motivation? What is our heart? Do you want to serve? You you want to be like William, serve, be a leader in the church. Do you want to volunteer with our kids ministry? Do you want to be on the worship team, right? Do you want to be with hospitality? Do you want to get involved? That's great. That's great, but we always need to go back to What is our motivation for wanting to serve, right? Because if we want to give, if we want to lead, if we want to teach, if we want to serve, it must be, it must come from our love for Jesus. Yeah. It can't be from anything else. And so we always have to stop and we need to slow down and we need to ask ourselves these questions. Then verse 17 The third time, Jesus says to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, this time, Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him this third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. So with each question of devotion, Jesus is giving this admonition to care for others. Jesus here, he's he's stripping down Simon. He's stripping him of his arrogance. He's stripping him of his impulsiveness. He's stripping him of his pride. He's stripping him of his old self, of his false expectations of leadership, of all of his idols. He's stripping him down. And he's digging into Peter's motives. And it's at this moment that, that you can begin to see Peter, the failure becoming Peter the Rock. I think it's a desire all of us have Um, in our moments of failure. We all have this desire, right? In moments of weakness, right? In these moments, we, we want... Nothing more than for Jesus to come into our lives and to begin to restore us, to speak into us, to put his grace over us. To take us from a place of weakness and a place of failure into a place of grace and forgiveness and strength. But in order to see this, We've got to stop blocking out these conversations in our lives, right? We've got to start talking to Jesus. And like, we're so often like Peter, we just want to be busy. And we assume activity is doing the same thing as having these real hard conversations with Jesus. And so, for Peter, before Peter could see the depth of his sin, he had to fully understand God's grace. There's great, great quote here from, from uh, Tim Keller. He puts it this way. He says, we are more wicked than we ever dared believe, but we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. I mean, That is that's some good stuff right there. You can read the rest of that one on your own. We're more, we're more wicked than we ever dared believe. We're more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared hope. Mm. So Peter, he had to understand the depth of his sin, the depth of his failure to begin to understand the depth of God's grace and the power of God's grace. And before Peter could become the rock, Jesus had to strip him down. Jesus had to humble him. A.W. Tozer is quoted as saying, God cannot use a man unless he hurts him deeply. That comes across to me kind of Kind of wrong, you know, it doesn't sound quite right. But I think I, I get what Tozer is saying. And, you know, and, and with Jesus and Peter in this interaction, I, I don't think Jesus is saying any of this or asking any of these questions because he wants to be mean. But, but he's doing it out of a pastoral heart. He's doing it out of a desire to restore Peter, right? He, he didn't want to, I don't think Jesus wanted this last interaction with Peter just to be, you know, a series of defeating sort of losses for Peter, but he wanted Peter to be affirmed in love. And and in contrast to all the other disciples, Peter's sin was the gravest. He had reached rock bottom. He was nothing. But remember, nothing. That's where God does some of his greatest work. Amen? And so this is something Peter, Peter had to learn the hard way. And, and we see this in, in Peter's first pastoral letter in 1 Peter 5, 6. He said this, and I think he knew what he was talking about. He said, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Peter knew this from experience. And you see, Peter came to realize that he was not the rock because of his great qualities or because of his great personality, right, or because of his leadership skills, that was all gone. That was all stripped away from Peter. Peter was a rock simply because he was following the one who truly was the rock. So for any of us, any of us that feel like maybe one time or another or a bunch of times you felt like a failure, You felt like you've hit rock bottom, right? This should give us incredible hope. Because look, it took Peter's greatest failure in life to to realize and recognize this one truth that sometimes our greatest failure is, is like the breeding ground for God's greatest success stories. So, Jesus restores Peter's identity, and then Jesus reframes Peter's purpose. Jesus reframes Peter's purpose. And here, Jesus gives Peter an admonition to to care for others, right? Feed my sheep, or feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. These three admonitions to care for other people. So, he gives Peter an opportunity Jesus gives Peter this opportunity to move his Christianity from his head and into his heart and then out into his hands, right? Because love does that. Love always has a demonstration, right? If we just profess love but never demonstrate it in any way, it's kind of hollow. I mean, think about in relationships, um, if if you're a parent to a child, you know, a husband and wife— you can say the right words all the time, but if you if you don't demonstrate them, it's kind of hollow. It doesn't really mean much. Love always has this demonstration, and so that's kind of what Jesus is getting at here, right? And it's interesting what he says. Um, you know, Jesus doesn't say, "Do you love me, Peter?" Okay, make sure you pray, right? Do you love me? Make sure you read your Bible every morning, right? I mean, do you love me? Make sure you're at church every Sunday. I mean, these things, are, these things are certainly valuable and important, right? But what Jesus is communicating here is, is the foundation upon which all of that is based upon, right? Because if we want to feed his lambs, we will be praying, right? If we want to take care of his sheep, we will be in community, in worship, knowing one another, living deeply together, right? Right? if we want to take care of bringing justice, right, we will be knowing and caring for the the widows and the orphans and the oppressed out there. We will be doing this. Here's another interesting thing. Peter's restoration doesn't come from from new information. It, It comes from old truths. It comes from really going back to the basics, right? Because because this is the same message Jesus has always shared. I mean, there, there's a there's a text in Matthew 24 when you know people are talking about the old covenant and the law, and then Jesus just kind of boils it all down, right? He just boils it out all down to like a really easy to understand: love God, right? Love God and love people, right? Love God and love that's that's it, right? It's the basics, and so so. So Jesus is restoring Peter, not with some new information, right? Not with some new revelation, but by going back to the basics. Love God, right? Feed my sheep, take care of my lambs. That's that's it. And Jesus has now given the disciples two missions. He gave them the mission to be fishers of men. And now Jesus is giving his disciples the mission to be shepherds of the flock, to take care of his flock, and the author N.T. Wright, he sums it up this way. He says, Christians should be found serving the world with arms outstretched, holding simultaneously to the pain of the world and to the love of God, right? That's what it means to go out and to feed my sheep and to feed my lambs, to take care of Jesus' flock. And it is intimidating, right? I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of intimidating, You know, to get out there, to give of yourself, to serve others, to share your faith, to evangelize. It's kind of intimidating, but let let me just point this out. Throughout the Gospels, Jesus' primary means of evangelism and of discipleship is this. Having a meal with somebody, right? Pretty basic. That's Jesus' primary means of, like, interacting with people is over a meal. Now, let me do a little survey and you can raise your hand in response. How many here have ever eaten food? Right, you can just raise your hand as a response. Right. Okay. Those of you not raising your hand will deal with you at the door after church. All right. All right. How many of you have ever eaten food, right. right? Well, Jesus did a lot of ministry over food. We all got to eat, right? Some of us more than others, but uh, we all got to eat. And so If you wanna get out there and love people and serve them and share your faith with them, just invite them to a meal, invite them out to eat, invite them to the food court at Oakland Mall, invite them into your home, cook a recipe, get the cookbook from the women's table, right? If you don't know how to cook, just buy some Hot Pockets. I don't know, right? It's not complicated. Share a meal, invite people into your home, invite your neighbors, invite your friends. For heaven's sake, invite your enemies. Invite them into your home. Share a meal with people. That's just, that's just like an easy place to start, right? This doesn't begin with new information. It's just going back to the basics. Love God and love people. Find a way where, where you can take that love that you have, that love that you profess, and to demonstrate it for others. A meal, it's an easy way to do that. So not only does Jesus restore Peter's identity and he reframes Peter's purpose, the last, the last thing we see about it is that Jesus reminds, pe- Jesus reminds Peter that there is a cost to this. There is a cost to discipleship. So verses 18 and 19, Jesus says, very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself, you went where you wanted, but when you were old, you'll stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you don't want to go. And Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. This, this begins, at verse, um, verse 18, it begins as very truly. Some, some versions will say like truly, truly. It just means like something really profound is about to be said here. Something really true is about to be shared, right? Something very trustworthy. And the last time that Peter heard these words very truly or truly, truly from Jesus is when Jesus told him he was going to deny him. Right? So Peter knows whatever is being said here. Is trustworthy and is true and is gonna happen. And Jesus Jesus says that you'll stretch out your hands, someone will dress you, lead you where you don't want to go, and then John, John likes to do this. He gives a little explainer, right? This this was sad because Peter's gonna Peter's gonna go be stretched out, like he's gonna he's gonna die. He's gonna die for his faith. So so Peter is being told that he's gonna go to the cross, just like Jesus did. Now, why, after this heartfelt, inspirational interaction, conversation, would Jesus now give Peter this depressing news, right? (laughs) Wow, really downer at the end of this. Um, Well, I think for Peter and for us, it's to remind us that following Jesus is not always going to be easy. Sometimes it is. A lot of times it is. Sometimes it's not. To truly be Jesus' disciple is not going to always be easy. Consider this list. You've probably heard of these before. You know, you think about those who followed Jesus. John the Baptist, right? right. First, first followers of Jesus. Head cut off. It's hard to recover from that one. Apostle Paul, tortured many times. It's thought that his head was cut off, right? Sort of like a theme you begin to see here. Peter's right-hand man, Mark, tied to a horse and dragged around the town until he died. Thomas, the disciple who wanted to touch the wounds, the, the nail marks and the spear mark in Jesus' side, he too was speared to death. John. John was the only apostle to die of natural causes, although to get there, he was boiled in oil and somehow survived it. And then he was exiled to a prison aisle in Patmos, and that's where he received the revelation and wrote Revelation. And then Peter himself, Peter himself, as history tells it, Peter was crucified. But as he was being taken to the cross, he said he did not want to be, didn't feel himself worthy of being executed the same way Jesus was. And so he was History says he was crucified upside down so it wasn't the same way as Jesus was. So Jesus is saying, Peter, you are going to make it through this and I will not lead you anywhere that I've not already gone. I'll not ask you to do anything that I've not already done, right? It's gonna be tough, but follow me and love me and love others and serve others. Now, there's a connection with this story that's quite personal for me. And I've probably shared this before, so, so I'm sorry if I'm being repetitive. <laughs> right. In 2017, I walked away from, from 16 years of ministry at a church in Charleston, South Carolina. Good, good years of, of Good ministry. And then in the last year, there was a, a small group of people. You only get one side of the story, but I think it's true. Small group of people. Well, I guess they just decided they didn't want me to be their pastor anymore. And so, you know, over, over a course of time, undermined my ministry, undermined me, attacked me, attacked my family. It was miserable. And, and finally, in the middle of the year, 2017, I was out of fight. Um. I felt like I was out of moves. I didn't know what else to do except leave. And so I resigned. And I resigned into to nothing. And I was devastated. And, you know, I, I knew, like, this isn't how ministry is supposed to end, right? You're supposed to go from one place to another place. Not just from one place to nothing. But I went from one place to nothing, and on my final Sunday, on my final Sunday there, I can remember you know, people asking me like, oh, are you gonna go, are you gonna be a pastor, are you gonna be in a church? Or, you know, and at that point, I, was, I didn't even know if I wanted to be a pastor anymore, right? In fact, I didn't think I wanted to be a pastor anymore at that point, but after a lot of soul work, after a lot of prayer, after a lot of waiting, after a lot of listening, about six months later, I began to ask that question, you know, God, what do you wanna do with me? Where do you wanna send me? What, how do you want me to, what do you want me to do, right? And I began to look once again, and that, strange, strangely enough, led us to Bolivia, you know, which then led us to here, Guatemala. And that, that time in Charleston, like that year, I can't say I'd want to do that again. It wasn't much fun. But, well, and, and I still wrestle with the kind of demons of failure. I think I always will. But when I was at the end of my rope, Y'all, God showed up. And so I always feel kind of like I can identify with Peter a little bit, being a failure, you know, falling on my face. But like Peter, like Peter, it was, it was in my brokenness that Jesus helped me to discover my identity and my purpose and my mission, right? Right? And it wasn't always easy, and it did come with a particular cost. But now I get to be here with you, and I get to love you, and I get to serve you, and then I get to turn around and watch you go and love others and serve others for Jesus. What a joy that is. But I wouldn't have ever walked into this church, and I wouldn't have ever found my identity and my purpose, and my mission, if I had not been broken. If I had not been stripped down to nothing. You know, and it's often something that can only be seen in hindsight. Hard to see it when you're in the middle of it, but often our greatest failures are God's breeding grounds, for his greatest successes. Might be for you too. So, John 21, it's this pivotal moment for Peter, but, but I think it's pivotal for all of us who follow Jesus. He uses broken and bent and messed up people who have carried around the name failure. He uses them. He uses them. He uses me. He'll use you to be ambassadors of his good news and of his love to a hurting world. But he requires a couple of things. He requires a couple of things from you. He requires a humble and repentant heart. He requires from you a desire to love him. And he, does, and he requires from you a desire to love and to serve other people. Do you love Him? Do you have a humble heart? Will you serve others? Right? That's what He asks. How are you doing it? How are you showing it? That's what he asks of us. That's what we learn from Peter. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we do thank you for this time in your word, this time to to wrap up, looking at these five different lives from Scripture, the things we can learn from them. I just pray you would give us ears to hear, ears to hear what you would have to say to us from the life of Peter, how you would be at work in us. some of us, we've probably had it together pretty good through our life. For many of us we've fallen on our face maybe we've carried that name failure and I'm so thankful that that like with Peter, you can restore us as well you can restore our identity you can restore our purpose and our mission Father God, you can use us. And sometimes when we're at rock bottom is the place where you do your best work out of nothing. And we thank you for that. And I pray that we would love you and love others. I pray that we would be fishers of men and also shepherds of your flock. That we would care for one another. We thank you and we love you. And and as we come today to your table, your table, just as you communed with the disciples on the beach that day, you draw us in as well to a meal with you. Because you want to be with us. And you want to love us. And you want to share your life with us as we share you with others. And so speak to us through broken bread and poured out wine today. Heal our broken hearts. Restore us from our failures, Lord. You can do it. We love you and we thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.